Yo, like, I'm going to be leaving tomorrow. Yeah, I'm very sad. Um, but I'll be honest, the food, I, I love you Irish people, Irish people in the house. You got, <clears throat> your language is so funny. Uh, and uh, the one thing I'm going to go back home, I'm going to say, yo, Peter, what you learn? I'm going to say, yo, uh, British food is, um, is banjacked, yo. <laughs> Banjacked, and uh, yesterday, thank you for the volleyball game, sisters. We look good. That's the most important thing. We didn't win that uh, beach volleyball game, and uh, you know, some of you saw a side of me where you know I was screaming and jumping, and um, and I overestimated my height. That every time I try to hit some big, big Chinese BCC sister, just like hit over me and slammed it. And every time I went, <laughs> and then some big girl came over me and just. Slammed, and um, thank you, Ian, for reminding me of my gender issues, um, and I'm still traumatized. But um, there are gender differences, I think. Um, despite everything that we say, I, I do think that we're different, and uh, some of the, the differences are, are like, really bizarre. Um, I, I don't know if this happens in, in the UK, but in America, when, um, when guys go to the bathroom, uh, we usually go alone. Um, it's pretty normal for us to go alone. Uh, when girls go to the bathroom, for some reason, you all go together. And I really, I don't really care what you do in the bathroom, but it really, it, it's a mystery to me. Like, what, why do you need to go together? Do you need help? Uh, <laughs> or do you like talk? Like, do you talk? Like, like, this just, for me, I just don't get it because I can't imagine going to the bathroom with like, hey, hey, Ian, go to the bathroom with me. Uh-huh. Ian's like, oh yeah, I want to go with you. All right, let's go together. And then, like, we go and we go. Like, it's not like, oh, so how's your day going? Oh, pretty good. <laughs> like, you know, what's the crack? <laughs> Crack's good. Like, you know, I don't, so I don't, and then you, you know, you go together and you come back together and it's just one of those bizarre things. Um, there's a study actually uh, um, in America where they look at social differences between boys and girls. And when they have two chairs, they just basically put two chairs um, for boys and girls. And inevitably, when, when they put these two chairs together, boys will always uh, put their chairs facing in the same direction and just sit like this and talk. You know, or just not talk and just go. <laughs> and it's just so different. And they say, but when girls walk into a room and there's two chairs, you know what they do? They turn it towards each other, and they sit like this, and they like looking at each other, and say, you want to go to the bathroom? Yeah, let's go to the bathroom together. <laughs> so that's something they do. Um, even my two boys, I mean, I, again, uh, I, I don't think I trained them to be this way, but um, they like fighting. You know, we, we didn't teach them to fight, um, but, you know, that, you know, they could be just kind of playing, and the next thing you know, like, Noah comes out with, like, a, a, like a fork sticking out of his eye and goes, ah, like, and they're constantly fighting. They're just, like, constantly jumping, like, from one place to another and destroying things in our house. And uh, I give them a book, you know, and they're very good for the first five seconds, and the next thing you know, they're using their books as swords. Like, <laughs> and then I go to another house of my friend who has a daughter, and I look at the daughters, and they're just sitting there, like, fixing the hair of their dolls. And I'm just like, can I just trade? <laughs> and then they're like, oh, and then after that, they'll, like, have a little party with their little dolls. 
and then they're sitting there just reading, just, just calm. And it's just, there's some differences. And even in the midst of how we get into trouble, it's different. And I think there's a double standard, right? Uh, I remember when I was dating my wife, um, you know, as you're dating, we're just sharing, we're having some deep conversations. And one of the things she said, you know, so tell me about uh, things that have really impacted you and formed you as a, as a man. And we're walking the streets of New York. It's beautiful. The moon's out. The stars are out. And we're walking. It's so beautiful. And then I'm sharing, like, how movies have had a huge impact in me and how it was the pathway for me to express my faith, to express things that I couldn't really be able to articulate. And all of a sudden, as we're walking, I'm sharing and pouring out my heart. The next thing I hear is, ooh, haagen like there's, uh, does is ice cream. Ice cream starts like, ooh, ice cream. And I was like, I was just pouring my heart out to you. And I looked at her, I said, what? And she's like, oh, sorry. Yeah, what you were saying? Uh, and I was like, I was just pouring out my heart to you. And she's like, oh, I'm, I was multitasking. <laughs> now, can you imagine if I did that? If I'm walking, she's pouring out her heart, like, oh, the reason why my faith is because I was, you know, backpacking in Arizona. It really impacted me. And it was the first time I wept over creation. I'm like, ooh, beer. (laughs) She's like, oh, you're so insensitive. Disgusting. Or when I went to see Wolverine, the movie Wolverine, you know, Hugh Jackman, there's this one scene in Wolverine where, remember, he was in this tank, and he comes down, he goes, Aah! and then they show his behind. And all the girls in the theater went, Aah! oh my God, and I was like, are you serious? <laughs> it's like a movie. Can you control yourselves? Now, can you imagine if you were watching a movie and some girl popped out of a tank, right? I don't know. Um, I, I can't even, I don't, I don't uh, yeah, I don't think about girls that much. Uh, but I don't know, whatever actress in your mind. And she jumps out of a tank, and it shows her butt, right? And all the guys went, yeah! Amazing! Ah! Smarter! The girls would be like, ah, come on, son. <laughs> So harm, so you like, right? You'd be like, oh, get away from me! You're disgusting. It's like a double standard. And even one time, I was, you know, I shared with the leaders that, you know, when we were dating, we went to this place in Union Square. And the reason why I know, like, when someone's good looking, is because when I, when I stand next to them, I feel pretty ugly. You know. So, like, when I stand next to someone, like, uh, who's really good-looking here? None of the Boston guys. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, like, Ken. Ken's a good example. Yeah. So, Ken is playing guitar. He's coughing a little bit. And I stand next to him, and I feel like, ooh, I feel a little fat and short. And he's just very cool. Just, you know, cool. And then I, I feel very, you know, not, not attractive. Uh, I stand next to uh, Vernon, and I feel, all right, I'm all right. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm like, Vernon, yeah, pretty good, you know, no insecurities there. Um, so that's how I know. So one time we're walking into this park, and then 
uh, J- my wife notices, and we both notice this guy playing guitar, and it's this Asian guy with a really nice dimple and a, like, a cowboy hat. And I'm like, wow, I feel really insecure right now. And then I look at her just to, you know, see what she's doing, and she's staring right at him like this. <laughs> like, so obvious. And I'm like, you know, you could, you know, you're, you could stop staring. You know, it's a little bit too much. And, you know, because she's really, like, smart to, like, you know, offshoot it, she goes, you were looking too. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you didn't say I was looking at her hat or anything. So there's this double standard on how we get into trouble. And this issue of trouble is going to come up in your life. Guys, you're going to go through all this, and you're going to feel this double standard all the time. Girls, you'd be like, yes, it's my standard. And it's double, double the trouble. What's up? And we're going to have this trouble. And Psalm 3, we're going to go to. And a lot of us are like kind of thinking, whoa, 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 we've been going through the New Testament. It's been really fun. Why, why are we going to the Psalms? Because I think Psalms will kind of give us a pathway to deal with trouble because that's actually how you show your courage or your lion heart. No one shows their lion heart. No one shows off like, yo, I'm a lion heart in the midst of comfort. Right? Like you're not sitting at home and Netflixing and going, yo, I got lion heart. Next episode. But you show your lion heart when there's trouble. When things come up and it's like there's troubling things. You know this yourself because when trouble happens in your life or trouble happens in your family or trouble happens in your friendship, what defines your friendships, your family, your relationship is the lion heart. That how do people respond in the midst of trouble? How do they respond? If they run away and go, oh, I'm out of here, then you realize, oh, okay. That's the true test. A true test of a person's courage, their loyalty, their trust is in the midst of trouble. And here is David in Psalm 3 going through this incredible sense of trouble. And the reason why I love Psalms is because I think Psalms has this way of kind of peeling back the heart of the writer. It's this raw thing. And God in his wisdom decided to put Psalms in our books so that we have a pathway to say, hey, in the midst of trouble, God is giving me a pathway or a way of thinking or a path for me to follow so that he shows me that, okay, this is what the psalmist went through before me. And I'm going to follow and pick up some of the things that he thought in his heart so that there is this kind of lion heart. And here's this incredible psalm where he... this. The Psalm of David is going through deep trouble. So let's read it together. If you can turn to me, uh, turn with me, and I'll read it. Turn to me. Wow, that's scary. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him. Selah. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people, Selah. Let's pray. Father, be with us as this, uh, we're on the horizon of this camp of 
of waking up this morning. Uh, we thank you that you are here this morning. You were here with us when we were sleeping and we were slumbering. Uh, you are here to show us the goodness of who you are. So we arrive today with a heart, and I pray that there's a heart of expectation to know how you're leading. Uh, so lead us today, especially as we're going to, towards to tonight, as we go to the campfire. And we know that what that means is our last evening together and it's the last time for us to, in a way, for us to publicly come before you and to each other and to be able to share where our heart is. And I pray that you give them a lion heart to share about who you are, give them a lion heart even in the midst of their own quiet that maybe they don't want to publicly share, but privately that you're working in their hearts. And we honor that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so just to give you a little background about the psalm, the psalm is in Psalm 3. The circumstances or the, the situation around it is that the story of the King David, he has fallen into sin. And the sin was he has committed adultery with Bathsheba. But on top of that, um, he, was com- he organized the murder. I was going to say complicit, but he organized the murder of the husband of, of uh, Bathsheba in order to cover up because she got pregnant. Really scandalous. And then on top of that, uh, there was this curse from Nathan onto him that the sword shall never depart from your house. And it sounds like a curse, but it's actually allowing David to know that there's going to be consequences. But even the consequences, and this is where we're going to be going through most of today, that even in the midst of circumstances, God is still going to be glorified. That God will still pursue you, even in the midst of that. So here he is, and what the Psalm 3 is, is actually in the backdrop of that, and the second kind of following episode is that his son Absalom is now starting this kind of revolution, or this, this uh, uh, push towards political power. And Absalom wanted to declare himself as king. And David had to run into the wilderness to flee for his life. It was a civil war, both in the family and the nation. And in the fullest extent now, it's really bringing to David to to his, his end. So he feels. Everything's been stripped of him. He's deposed as a king. He's no longer king. There's an army after him, literally trying to not only imprison him, but actually kill him. So literally, if you take the parable of the lost sons, this is like the parable of the lost son on steroids. It's like the younger son really going after the father, not just taking away his parentage, but actually taking his lordship and actually wanted to kill him. So again, all this storehe is being broken. And there's this real kind of this familial strife in the midst of all this brokenness. Now, psalms is always have this pattern. A lot of the patterns are this, especially in the laments, which means the ones that are crying out, that there's always a kind of a start with this idea of trouble. And then there's always a movement, starting with trouble, then moving towards trust. That I see this trouble around me, but I need to trust that you're here. I need to trust that you're just. I need to know that you're a God, although you're vast and far, that even though I'm small, but there's something very significant about my situation that you want to speak into. So you're in this room right now. You're probably either thinking about trouble, and you get stuck there. 
But Psalm says you have trouble, now move to trust. And then from trust, there's a sense of triumph. That the fully realizing that God is going to be triumphant and victorious, the line of Judah. And that gives us this courage that he's going through. And there's this pattern. Jonah Eric Tata uh, Erickson wrote this incredible quote that said, the Psalms wrap nouns and verbs around our pain better than any other book. Because it represents just this pure, naked faith. Just unadored. Adorned. And Tim Keller, in the sermon on this, which I'm going to base some of it on, is that he, we pray our troubles. We pray them. And we pray our sorrows to God. And often this is one of the prayers as one of the most overlooked aspects of our own walk. We do not pray our troubles. We love praying in thanksgiving. We love praying adoration. We like petition when we ask for things. But this idea of praying our troubles is something that we haven't really developed a discipline in. We stuff it down, as we've been kind of discovering the last couple of days, is that when we suffer, we tend to just stuff it down. So the three points of the sermon is kind of the movement of the Psalms, is trouble, trust, then triumph. Trouble. Let's look at verse 1 and 2. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying to my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. You notice there's a lot of repeating of what? Many. Many, 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 many. He's thinking about the numbers. He's thinking about, oh my goodness, there's all these numbers there of these enemies are pursuing me. And then there's this kind of condemnation now that on top of all these people like trying to kill him physically, they're actually attacking his reputation and the reputation of the God. He's saying there's no salvation for him in God. And for most of us in this room, uh, emotions are something that you just are to be stuffed. Especially in Christian circles, I feel like so many of us in church, whenever you feel a very strong emotion, they tell you just stuff it. Pray. I'm angry at God. Pray. I hate my teacher. Pray. And all of this just kind of like putting stuff, but, the, but what Psalms does is that it doesn't give us a religious approach. It doesn't just tell you to pray, but it tells you a source of prayer. It tells you not to just pray, 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 just like, you know, just stop my anger, stop my anger, stop my anger. There's nothing in here that says stop my anger. There's nothing here that says stuff my, my, my emotions here. But rather, he's taking these emotions and then putting it out there and saying, I'm placing my trouble before you. You don't just vent them. But you're just kind of just dumping it, but you're actually presenting it as if with an expectation something's going to happen. But here's the thing. David actually has something he's afraid of. He literally has armies after him. He has literal people trying to kill him. So right in the middle, what does he get to? He goes, I will not fear. Is where he's trying to arrive from verse 1 and 2 as he's moving. So here he is, Absalom has risen. They're pursuing him. And if you think about it, I don't think anyone in this room has a son that wants to kill them. Maybe my kids, once in a while, want to kill me. But, however, there's parts of you in this room that I, I suspect that you all are going through this area in our lives. Or if you haven't, you will one day where you have conflict 
as Winnie shared, there's sense that sometimes it's haunt of failure. There's fear. There's, there's love that sometimes in the midst of it we get betrayed. There's loss. And every morning that you wake up, there's a story. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was this great <clears throat> German theologian, once said, wrote this book called The Cost of Discipleship. And he says, you know, everyone has a different cross we have to, have to bear. Everyone has a different thing we have to carry. For me, it's very different from what you go through. So we can't compare ourselves. Like we can't say, hey, look, whoa, tear fun. Look what they do. Those are the real spiritual Christians. They have the real battle. And what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says is that that's not that, that they have a better battle. They have a different battle. Your battle every day and your call, call to discipleship is to decide either you follow Christ or you follow the world. So when you're presented with, just say you have an opportunity to cheat as a student, you have an opportunity to either follow Christ or follow the world. You have an opportunity to download Game of Thrones on some torrent. Even though it doesn't seem like a big deal, you're like, oh, come on, Peter. That's, is that really sin? I'm like, it's not, a, it's not like a huge sin in your eyes, but it's an issue of trust. That's your cost of discipleship. That's your cost to say, am I willing to do something that's explicitly said that is wrong, or am I just going to follow Christ? And here's the thing. He's in this place, and he's like, well, now I'm experiencing all these issues, and he's panicking. He's saying many, many, many. There's a crowd of enemies that are coming, and we have something deeper. And, and many of them are saying of me, God will not deliver him. God will not save him. And now when you hear that, he's basically, it, it, the undertone is like, they're not going to save him because you have sinned. And again, he's throwing in his face, you've sinned. Many, 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 I'm not going to be saved. And that attack, I think, is almost just as deep. And that's what we feel here today at times. I feel it. The attack of my reputation, of who I am. And they're saying, many of my soul. And it's not just the outer life, but the inner truth that it's pointing to. And that's where he's kind of stuck, and that's where he is. But so many times, we don't realize that pain is actually a gift. That when trouble comes, it's actually a gift to us. It's almost like smoke. And where there's smoke, there's going to be a fire. And you follow the smoke and say, well, what is that revealing about me? Why am I so anxious? Why do I feel such deep trouble? What is it? C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our joy and pleasure. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our joy and pleasure. But in our pain, he yells and rouses up a sleeping world to get our attention. And if we do not follow the smoke, then we don't know how to solve and put out the fire unless we really realize that is, that is where the source is. You don't just get rid of the smoke. Firemen don't go into a house on fire and put out the smoke. They put out the fire. My pastor, my good Korean pastor, senior pastor, a few years ago, his father, healthy man, he was like in his 80s. He walked, I think, about 15 miles every single day as exercise. I don't know how many kilometers is that. 20, oh, this math's genius over here. 
you would think they were at a Chinese camp or something. Uh, 24 kilometers. 24 kilometers that he, that he would walk. And his father was this incredible healthy man for an 80-year-old. Then one day he started coughing. And they thought, oh, he just has a cold. Not a big deal. Cold. And you know what he, he drank? He drank Robitussin, which is cough medicine. The Robitussin helped him sleep. And he says, just a cold, just a cold. Not a big deal. He's a healthy man, walking 16 miles, 50 miles every, every single day. He kept drinking the Robitussin. Cough went away. Then he walked. Cough came back again. Drank the Robitussin. Cough. And then all of a sudden, one day, he just collapsed. They took him to the hospital. And it turned out he had pneumonia. He died basically five days later. And this is what the doctor said. Uh, because you were taking the cough medicine, it was subduing the symptoms. He actually needed to cough. And they weren't trying to make him feel, the, the family feel bad, but in kind of drinking that cough medicine, it kind of just stuffed down the symptoms of the cough, which was actually indicating something much more deeper, and he died. And I remember going to the funeral, going with him and seeing him and hugging my, my pastor. And I remember him just saying, like, he, just, he was just haunted with, like, if we had just actually followed, like, didn't give him the Robitussin. If he wasn't this stubborn old Korean guy and he just said, oh, nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong. You know how it is. Chinese parents, they, they never admit that there's anything wrong. You know, like their leg, they could like get their legs chopped off and they're like, it's okay. Uh, we'll just put some uh, seaweed <laughs> and it'll be, it'll be okay. Put some seaweed and it'll grow back. Uh, if, as long as we get some turtle blood and we drink it, you know, upside down, <laughs> then it'll be fine. Because he's this strong Korean guy who's just like, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. And then just taking this medicine, which stuffed down what was really wrong with him. He said he could have lived another, easily another 15 years. So when trouble comes and you feel pain and you feel anxiety, it's God's way of kind of saying, hey, there's something going on in your heart that I want to deal with. And I want to bring you. And I want you to kind of come and come out of this, this suffering and this pain and trouble. And you're feeling like very down. Then, then there's something that said, God say, I want you to now present it to me. Because here's my trouble. And then what we do is we move towards trust. Verse 3 says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered with him his holy hill, Selah. The word is not just you are a shield for me. It's a shield about me, which basically means it's around me. And this shield is not a shield that gets you away from danger. If you watch Captain America, he doesn't have a shield to get away from danger. What makes him so lion-hearted as a hero? He has a shield to do what? To go into danger. If you have a shield just to like at home, just to get away from danger as a fashion ornament, it's useless. But it's used for us to go into danger. But this shield in which is described is not just shield up front, but the shield around us, around me, as David would say. And he's basically saying, I know you won't let bad things happen to me as a means of just to destroy me, but to 
strengthen me, to share, I'm, uh, to shape me. I'm scared, but I know you're going to let that bad things happen to me. But you're going to protect me. If you can just go to the slide real quick, Francis, of Nico when he was... Uh, so I shared a story with you yesterday, I think, about my son. Uh, so I told you the story that my wife's water broke. We went to the hospital. Everything changed. They started pumping her up with steroids. And they, they put the steroids into my wife so that it would go into my son so that his lungs would grow. The next day, as I shared, the pediatrician came to us and said, you know, he's premature. He's going to have all these defects. Most likely, it's going to be a really hard ride. But because our hospital has the best technology, we've made a lot of uh, advances in, in, in helping premature babies. If this baby was here, maybe like even as, as soon as five or uh, ten years ago, it would have been really difficult. But because of technology, these, you know, you'll be able to, to, to manage. And I remember going before my church. And because of my presence in, in the Chinatown church at that time, I was doing a lot of ministry with all different churches in New York City. Um, there was dozens of churches praying for our family. And it was actually moving because every so often I'll get uh, a call to, to preach at different conferences and I'll go and then people will come up to me because, oh, I remember when Nico was sick, our church prayed for you. And I remember going before our congregation, you know, basically two days or three days after this incident, and I remember coming before our congregation and I said, guys, can you pray for us? And I said, I really appreciate all you guys praying for healing, which we should. It's biblical. But I said, the battle for Jamie and I, my wife and I, is our hearts. That our battle is not necessarily in the circumstances, but our battle is in our hearts because right now we're not sure if God is good. And if you can pray for us to trust that in the midst of all of this, that that's where our battle is. So I asked our church to pray for our hearts. Because at the end of the day, we don't know what's going to happen to Nico. We didn't know that even he might, might pass away. And actually, when the, my wife was giving birth at the moment, Nico had tons of complications. Like almost every complication you could have. His, uh, my wife, uh, she had a fever. She doesn't remember this, but she had a fever that was off the chart. They, they came in with ice packs to put it all over her because they were trying to calm down the fever. That meant the infection in her body was growing. And then his heart rate went crazy. So the, the, the nurses were going, like running around trying to get, to get this ready. And then it turns out that when he was coming out and the, you know, they were pushing, and then you know it's bad news when the doctor goes, hmm. And she told me to get out. She goes, I need you to leave the room. And what happened is the umbilical cord was around his neck. So everything that, like, you know, could go wrong. And then when Nico came out, you know, one of the most beautiful moments you see in the movies all the time, because this is my first child, so I didn't know, like, you know, first time you see the baby. What did you see the baby? It's that, that you know, that, that cliche that's crying. Everyone's crying. You slap the baby in the butt, you know. And I was like, I was, like, I was ready. I was like, yeah, I want, you know, I want to watch you slap my baby's butt. But the minute the baby came out, there was no crying. It was like silence. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And they said, and they ran to my wife and presented and he goes, quickly, please kiss the baby. She kissed the baby and they ran out. And then I was screaming, what are you, what, why is he not crying? Why is, like, why are you not doing this? What's going on? 
And the nurse is like, we don't know. We, we have to make sure he breathes. Because right now he's in critical condition. And he's in ICU. I got on my hands and knees. And I said, this is where the battle is, God, for me right now with you and me. The battle is not like, please save my son. Please let him live. Because if you don't let him live, I still need to know that you're good. I still need to really believe that even if he doesn't make it, and if he doesn't make it, that I will see him one day. And I need to believe that. I need to believe that he's not this just little particle thing that doesn't matter to you, but he actually has a great value to you. He has great value for me, and I cherish it. It's a miracle, and I want him, and I desire him. I want to be a father. We want to be a father. And if he has defects, you've given the best family to ever raise a kid with defects. You have an incredible church that will love this kid as, as, as if he's like perfectly and wonderfully made. And I prayed and I prayed and I said, God, but I want more than anything. I want to know that you're good. I want to know that you're a shield about me. Give me the courage to believe that. That was my prayer. But in my early days as a Christian, I would just go, please save him. Please save him. Please save him. Because if you save him, that proves that you're good. If you don't save him, that proves that you're bad. If you don't rescue me, it means you're bad. But here's the thing about God. If he does everything that you want, you have like the ultimate wisdom. Guess who's God? You are. Or you have the same wisdom as God. I don't want to worship a God like that. It's like my kids. If I gave everything that my kids wanted, they would would never sleep. They'd be obese. They would never brush their teeth. In my kids' mind, they're like, why, Dad? Why do you make me do this? It's so stupid. And I said, because you are an eight-year-old kid. You know nothing. You don't want a parent that's eight years old. You want a parent who's 46 years old. Who knows? And the same thing with God. I said, I don't know. I remember seeing him in the NICU. NICU is a plastic case where he is, where we took this picture. And to just see him breathe and just him being so weak. And every morning they would prick his toe to get a blood test. And then one time they did it and he cried. And, you know, as a new father, I cried because I saw this, my son. But the incredible thing is within two days, the doctors came back and said, yo, your son is ridiculous. He's breathing, like on, just breathing like, like there's no tomorrow. And then I looked at him and I touched him. And then I realized, oh, my goodness, he's so hairy. And I thought, it was the, I thought it was the steroids. And I was like, yo, why is my son so hairy? It's like Chewbacca. I like have a little, little you know, the Chewbacca in, my, in his NICU. And they're like, it happens to all babies. They come out furry. And I was like, okay, a little furry. I'm good with that. I'm like so ignorant. I was like, you know, ignorant. Like, so newborns, I didn't realize newborns can't see. I didn't know that. That's how ignorant I am. So when we were about to take him home, and then six days later, we're about to take him home, which is huge, because they thought that he was going to be in the NICU for at least two months. Six days later, he's, able to, he's breathing on his own, just doing his own thing. So don't need a tube. I'm good. And I remember him sitting in, the, in, the, in child seat, because they have to test the child seat that he can breathe in the child seat for about 45 minutes. So I'm waiting with him, looking at him, and he's like, you know, his eyes are open. I was like, and I do this. 
and he's not blinking. And I'm like, he's blind. <laughs> like, I was like, oh my goodness. They put too much steroids on him. <laughs> he's blind. I'm going to have a hairy blind child. And I went to the nurse. I said, nurse, nurse, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with his eyes. And they're like, what's wrong with his eyes? I said, you got to come. And they came. And I said, watch, watch. And she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, he's not blinking. And she's like, they don't see till like about three or four months. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, cool. <laughs> I knew that. I was just, you know, making sure you knew that. But here he is trying to remind me or shield about me, not because he saved Nico, but that he was present with me. That the shield about me is that I'm going to protect you from the ultimate danger, which is your, my absence. That's like the ultimate danger of his absence. And I, he was saying, I'm here with you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to be here with you. And it's one of the most hardest things to do to really kind of have this sense that God is with you and protecting you. And knowing that actually in his protection, in his kind of keeping things away from you, he's actually good. And that's the battle where your courage lies. And if we don't have that, then it becomes incredibly difficult. But that journey to get there is very, very hard because it doesn't seem that way. It seems like God is doing something like he's tricking us. He's giving us the very things that we don't want. And I remember when I was first dating Jamie, I remember just that one of the things that we did was uh, her friends wanted to have a surprise birthday party for her. And I hate surprise birthday parties. Number one, I'm not a very good liar. And number two, you know how surprise birthday parties, it's always something goes wrong. So it was her birthday. All her friends had this great buffet, Korean, Chinese restaurant they wanted to go to. And I said, Jamie, uh, you know, ready for your birthday? She's like, yeah, you know, good. And this cool thing about this restaurant is that on your birthday, when you show us your birthday is free. So I was like, oh, this is great. We're going to go because, and she wanted to go. She was like, oh, I love this restaurant. It's going to be so much fun. And then all of a sudden that day she decides, you know what? I don't feel like going there. And I went, oh, no, we should go. And then she's like, no, I'm in a mood for something else. You know, I'd rather have something a little bit more, like, you know, romantic than a buffet where we're stuffing our face. And I was like, no, I think it's really important that we go (laughs) to this buffet. And then she's like, Peter, it's my birthday. I decide where I should go. And I say, yeah, but we already planned it. And it's like, you know, we should stick to our commitments. And then she goes, stick to our commitments? You're the worst. (laughs) Because I'm always changing my mind about food. And she's like, no, we're going to the other place. I said, no, 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 we really need to go. And, like, I was dating her at the time, and she's like, I was afraid she was going to break up with me because she was just like, what a jerk. On my birthday, he's telling me where we should go. And I said, no, no, we should go. And she's like, I don't understand why you're being so mean. Like, it's my, and she's, like, beginning to get really upset. And, like, you know how girls, when they get upset, like, they're, they're ace of spade card to end the argument and start crying. And I can see tears coming, and it's almost like, <laughs> see, you're like, you know, no matter how right you are, you're like, hey, and you know what? And then they're like, you're like, oh, all right. Okay, let's, let's steal money. It's okay. Because <laughs> you're right. And I, was, I didn't know what to do, and I said, we got to go. And I'm like, I'm going there without you. <laughs> and the whole time there, it was the worst, like, 30 minutes of my life. And she's going there. And then we show up. And then some stupid friend of hers happened to go to the bathroom at the same time. And then she's like, hey, Chi, why are you here? And then Chi looks at us and he goes, and he walks away. (laughs) 
And I'm like, and she goes, that was really weird. I was like, oh, what an idiot. And then she's like, oh, this is going to be, she, and she was like talking under her breath, this is going to be the worst birthday of my life. And I went, oh, yeah, let's go. <laughs> and then we walked through the door, and all her friends were there, and she just started like laughing and crying because she was so happy. And then she looked at me, she goes, you, you, you're good. And I was like, I'm, I suck. <laughs> all I did was like, come on, let's go. I didn't even have a story, like, oh, my uncle's there, and oh, you know, I heard that Denzel Washington might be showing up, so we should go. It wasn't like anything. I was just, uh, no, we go, we go, we go, we go. No, oh, we go, we go, we go. And God is kind of like, has this thing, and it feels like, why are you doing this to me? Like, what are you doing? But the very thing is that he's taking us to this incredible journey of goodness, that looks like it's horrible. looks like you're doing things I don't want to do. Why are you doing this? But he's saying, you got to trust. You have to trust that I'm taking you. I'm giving you this thread, and it looks horrible. It looks painful. It looks like you're betraying me. It looks like you're lying to me. It looks like you don't value what I want. But rather, he's taking us to a place of courage to say, I trust you. Therefore, I have this incredible courage. Then finally, this idea of triumph. But prior to triumph, there's this incredible, beautiful moment in this book of Psalms where he says, you are the lifter of my head. And everyone, no matter what culture you're in, that idea of lifting up your head is very powerful. When do you put your head down? When you feel dejected, discouraged, or when you feel ashamed. My sons can't hide that. When they do something wrong, that's their immediate reaction. It's to look down. But God is saying, in the midst of all this, I'm going to lift your head. He's the lifter of my head. He's not only protecting us, but he's lifting our head. And then the minute David sees and he's able to lift his head, what does he do? The most incredible thing, he doesn't say, all right now, sorry, all right now. You lifted my head, I'm ready to take all my enemies. But rather, he, what does he do? He sleeps. Why is that such an incredible thing? Because in the midst of that is his sense of peace that he's able to go to bed. A lot of times we stay up really, really late at night because of anxiety. And then you're saying, well, I don't have anxiety. I stay up all night and just have fun. And I say, well, it's another form of anxiety. You're medicating some, maybe something lonely. You don't want to be alone. You don't want to sleep because there's something that you want to stimulate yourself. And you just want to be able to, like, make myself feel good. I want to medicate something, so I'm going to watch something until I'm, like, dead tired and go to sleep. Because that few minutes or the half an hour, an hour right before you go to bed, it, that's when all the things of the day kind of comes to you. And all these verdicts, all these things that you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. You're lied, you're lied, you're not worthy. But God lifts up his head, and he's able to sleep. He's able to rest, and he's able to be restored and be renewed. And here's a triumph. He goes, I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and sleep. I will not be afraid of a thousand people who have sent themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Now, where do we go with this? I am a firm believer that all of Scripture speaks of Christ. 
that there's not a single word in the Bible that does not point to Jesus. That's where I see it. That's where I, my, what we call the hermeneutic, the way we interpret scripture, the way we look at scripture. It is all of Christ. And this is just, for me, when I read it and was preaching on this, all of this just came out. He was able to sleep. And all this was coming. The Lord has sustained me, but how? Verse 2 says, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation. David's saying, they're saying this of me. But Jesus said, that was said of me too. Because he was hurled insults on the cross. For this he had been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is from 1 Peter 2, 2 21 to 25. He committed no sin, neither was there any deceit on his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who just judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. Matthew 27 says that when people passed him, they derided him. They said, you who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're the son of God. Come down from the cross. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. Insults were hurled at him. Verse 4, I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. This holy hill was what commentator says is the same holy hill in which Jesus, on the Mount of Olives in Gethsemane, he was praying in anguish to the point of sweating blood. Verse 5, it says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Jesus lay down and slept in a tomb and died, and he was risen. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people, verse 6, who have set themselves against me all around. When he was at the cross, there were not thousands of people against him, but a whole humanity rejecting him. They've set him, themselves against him. Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You will break the teeth of the wicked. He rose and was triumphant over the grave, and all the enemies that was his, he took the hit. He was struck on the cheek. He became the enemy and the punishment and the wicked on behalf. That's why Matthew 26, the high priest tore his robe and said, He has uttered blasphemy. Jesus uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? Now we have heard this blasphemy. What's your judgment? They answered, he deserved death. Then they spit in his face and struck him and slapped him. And as they slapped him, they were mocking him. Prophesy to us, Christ, who is it that struck you? Verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. And this blessing be on your people. He offered to us this blessing. And the only way we're able to get this salvation that belongs to the Lord to all of us in this room is because he was able to bless us because he was taken away of every blessing. And until that grips your heart, you're never going to have the courage that God wants to give to you. You're going to find courage in your action, your reputation, all these things. But the courage that God wants you to say, look to Christ. He's the true David. And because he's the true salvation, you can have courage. Let's pray. Father, there, we want this to be a reality. So I ask yourself to be real enough to these people today that it's not this abstract idea. 
And I pray that you become real to us, so real that you become our glory. Help us with our fears. Help us with our troubles. For they're the ones that are haunting us and frightening us. And we place them before you as we go throughout this rest of the camp, especially as we go before the campfire today. Prepare us in a way not to just, again, to build up courage, but to look at the one who has courage, who has overcome. In Jesus' name we pray.